Rika Technologies and GodAndAppIdea.com present this week's episode of Incubate This in partnership with The Rika Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is uh, Grant, Daryl, and Cynthia from Rika Technologies and GodAndAppIdea.com. So today we're talking about uh, a Crunchbase article that just came out. They, they Every year Crunchbase does a bunch of like insights and digging into what startups failed this year. Why did they fail? And they did a thing about a week ago, beginning of November, where they did a postmortem on 101 startups that failed in 2019, 2018 and 2019. And what they what they were looking for is why did these companies fail? And it, on the Startup Therapy Couch, we've done we did a, a seven episode series where we talked about the top seven reasons why your startup might be failing. Um, what's interesting is and that that was based on um, Harvard did a study in their business school. And then Statistic Brain did a bunch of studies and some postmortems and reviewed a bunch of companies. And they both sort of agreed on the top 10 of those. And so we did the top seven because the bottom three were sort of like iterations of the of part of the others. Um, but Crunchbase actually came up with a different list. And I think it's really interesting. Um, and in, per- in particular, the number one reason that they found in 2018, 2019, that 42% of the companies they postmortemed failed because there was no market need or desire for what the companies were trying to do. 42%, almost half. So I wonder how many of those companies went out and said, we're going to build it and they will come. I would guess all of them did. Yeah. And so this points to product market fit, which we are like broken records around here uh, with product market fit. This is the biggest reason why our startup program is built the way it is, is that we put all the pieces together to get to, do you understand the problem you're solving? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do the people who actually have that problem think you understand the problem and how do they relate to the problem? And then does your solution resonate with those people? Will they actually spend money or change their habits or both to solve this problem in the way that you're proposing? So why is it, what, it, what is the mentality that drives people? Because these are all businesses they studied that spent hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in development and marketing and sales and social media and advertising and all this stuff to ultimately fail. Why is it that what, what is that gap between I have an idea and the very next thing I should be doing is, is there a need for this thing? Let me go do that research. Why is that not the thing that people automatically think of? I think it's, and Grant, you can speak to this because Grant knows someone that had this sort of mentality of, I know that there's a market for this. So there's a little bit of a built-in hubris, I think, that a lot of people have. Maybe everybody has. I know that there's a market for this. This is such a good idea. I need this so bad. I know everybody else needs it too, so then they don't. So it's like that. And if if you're like me, and I know I am. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
what is it? Is is this a is this a human experience thing that if we feel a pain point, is it just a natural human thing to think that everybody else must experience it the same way as us? I think so, but it's also odd about humans that we also think we're the only ones that ever feel this way. Hmm. You know what? It, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. it's it's a dichotomy in in ourselves because we do both of them, both of those things, the opposite of each other, all the time. Yeah. Um, huh. but in this case, it's, it's kind of manifesting as I need this. So everybody needs this, which is a good signal, right? I mean, if, if it's a problem you're trying to solve for yourself, there's a good possibility that other people have that same problem too. So, um, you know, maybe it, is this problem product market fit or is it that there's just not a big enough, there are people that have the same problem you have that you're solving. Yeah. There just aren't very many of them. It's, or they're not, they don't want to pay for it. It's a good point. So understanding that when, when Crunchbase says there's no market need, that doesn't mean that there aren't maybe 50 or 100 other people out there who have the same problem that you do. Or 1,000 or 10,000. Well, you just can't build a business on right. that. I mean, depending on how much people are willing to pay or how painful the problem really is, the effort it takes to get to your solution may never net you an ROI mm -hmm. because there's not enough market which, by the way, is how we quantify market need. If if the market's too small, then it's not a market need. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes me think a little bit of, I, I don't know if you remember during the dot-com boom, um, the most popular thing to do was to build a feature. You know, everybody said, I'm building a, a startup, I'm building a product. And in reality, they were building a feature of a product. It's just that there was, there was, it was so frothy as they used <laughs> it at the, at the time you know, everybody, the dot com and blah, 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 that that's all you had to do to was raise money feature. was just build a feature. Yeah, I find it fascinating, though, that the the people that come up with products that I see and I think, oh, my God, I didn't know I needed that until I saw it. Yeah. And why didn't somebody invent that 40 years ago? Yeah. Like that 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 pull cart that's actually three wheels on a little triangle assembly so oh, that yeah. it'll go upstairs yep, yep. where the entire wheel assembly yep. rotates to get to the next chair. I see that and I'm like, well, duh. that's a mechanical yeah. thing that you would have thought, <laughs> you know, Leonardo da Vinci would have invented <laughs> because it, it, it's just, that's brilliant. Yeah. You know, you see it and you're going, that's, if, it, if it's sturdy enough, that's brilliant. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That happens all the time. You know, and, 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 you know, that, that is a case to me where it's like, how would that guy validate that, that there's a need for that? That's one of the, you know, so you do have people who come up with something that the people don't even know they need, but I know this is an issue in day-to-day -day life. And when they see this, they're going to get, they're going to want it. And it that yeah. probably happens. Yep. But everybody thinks they've come up with that thought. Well, and you can still product market validate that. Now, it take for something like that that's a real world product, you have to build a prototype of the thing in order to to mm. to validate your market. Yeah, you go to you'd go talk to you old talk folks. to some. Yeah, well, <laughs> you find hundred and fifty people who have stairs in their house. Yeah, and you go to the you say, I would like to I would like to get your input on a new product. And so, so now we're getting into how do you do product mar market validation? We're going to talk more about this, but to your point, Grant, it's no different than the way we do it, which is you have to build a prototype of that thing that you could demo to somebody. You find 150 people who have stairs in their house. You describe to them, you know, you ask them, is it difficult for you to move heavy things up and down the stairs? 
you know, or awkward things that are, you know, whatever. And how often do you face that problem? Like you do some qualifying questions, right? To figure out how problematic is it. And then you bring in the prototype. Well, I mean, that really does speak to what, you know, got an app idea is doing because it seems to be all about building the prototype. Don't spend those thousands or millions on a whole bunch of other stuff until you've got something that you can get people's opinions on. Yep. I just thought about the bug assault gun. I mean, the guy's made so much money and I'm thinking, what kind of market research did he do? Well, he came up with, obviously, in his beer drinking time, probably <laughs> came up with something, you know, that reflected the concept of what he was doing and he was shooting some flies with it. Yeah. And then he asked his, you know, his drinking, his college drinking buddies, <laughs> what do you think about this? Right. Yeah. And they probably, you know, had another beer and started designing it. <laughs> Thought it was cool. Um, now, what's but, interesting is the novelty market is almost always a little bit unique in that yeah, you can get that, that sort of like viral hit, sort of like the pet rock thing. Pet Definitely rock. I was thinking of the, the Bubba teeth. No, it does not have to be useful. Yeah. The Bubba teeth. It's like if you can if you can get that vir- viralness, virality, mm-hmm. I don't know what the right word is. But virulence. If, the virulence. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is a nasty <laughs> word. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you can get that novelty viral quality to the thing that you're putting out then you can probably get it into something like Spencer's or on Amazon. And every time somebody sees it, there'll be a new little kick. And, and probably with something like that, because it doesn't have to be useful. It doesn't have to really function. It doesn't really matter if it works. It's just funny. You know, that sort of lives in a whole own dynamic of itself. And that really comes down to however much money you're willing to put into marketing and campaigning this thing. Probably you can make some money. That was the, I don't know if you remember, that was the big thing for a while too. The big, you know, VCs were always talking about, you know, you need to build something that's going to be viral. And then research was done that showed, yeah, viral actually does work for things like novelty, but it doesn't work for everything. No, it doesn't. The reason that things go viral is because there's some inherent quality about them that resonates so deeply with, with almost the entire world, whether that's an emotional thing where you see those videos about like uh, the one that went around like a month or two ago was the one where Keanu Reeves was on a bus and a guy was videotaping him because he thought it was so cool. And uh, a lady came walking down and he stood up and gave her his seat and stood. And it was just one of those moments where a guy was like just filming it because he was like, dude, the real Keanu Reeves was on the bus. And then that happened. And that resonates with people in terms of where we're at as a society with how we care about others. And like everybody wants to see more of that because most of what we see in the world right now is so horrible, how people treat each other horribly and talk about each other horribly and everything's bad. Right. So trying to plan on something going viral as your marketing strategy, pro tip, don't do it because it won't, it won't, you know, uh, potpourri, the poopery. Poopery, You remember that? Yes, we have. That went viral. That wasn't their marketing strategy. It just happened because people, it was hysterical. And the way they did their commercials was hysterical. I've not seen the commercials, but there is a, there is a certain attribute of, of, um, uh, what's the word you said earlier? See, I'm having trouble with words. I know. (laughs) Um, with the, the teeth, Oh, there's novelty. Novelty. There's yeah. certain novelty to poopery yeah, already. There is. So it kind of has a little bit of that there is. going in its favor. Yeah. Well, it almost sounds like then 
the word viral should never come up in a marketing strategy conversation. No, it never should. It just, ha- you know, it's serendipitous if it happens. Yeah, yeah happens. exactly. Unless you are social marketing gurus that have expertise that we haven't seen, right? Yeah. I, I just, that I you think. You know how to make this happen, but very few people do. Very, very few. And I think most of the time when things go viral, it's not because somebody planned it that way. Yeah. And, and it's very, very rare that it's stuff that is produced and planned and like, you know, there's a strategy behind it. It's literally like accidental viralness. I mean, to your point, there's probably some very, very few exceptions, but if you are the average entrepreneur building a startup and you're thinking to yourself, my, my marketing camp, my marketing strategy is going to be, this is just going to go viral. You're exactly in the wrong place in your mind. And we would, we would posit there's a 42% chance you're the guy who hasn't actually tested whether the market needs and wants what you're offering. You Not to mention statistic. how many millions of dollars did the Boba Teeth and the Poopery people have to spend just to get to virality, just to get to, to their product being it, viral. And that that's a whole nother thing. I mean, I think what I think with Poopery, she actually had never intended that. Um, you know, they didn't they they didn't start out with their ads on TV. They started out with their ads on YouTube in mm. like social media and they were paying for YouTube placement, social media placement, which is not really all that expensive. I mean, if you have a five to $10,000 a month advertising budget for AdWords and mm. social media and all that kind of stuff, you can get, re- I mean, we spent maybe $1,000 in the last two months and got almost 400,000 impressions wow. for Rika. So it's actually not hard yeah. um, to do that. The thing is that their commercials are so freaking hysterical you have them in this like everybody speaks with a british accent and they're talking about using the toilet and it is just it is like bbc level hilarity and so people are like this is so funny i have to like share it and post it and that's how it ends up going viral Mm. if they had said we're gonna build these so that they will go viral it never would have worked that wasn't her strategy it just happened that way. <laughs> I, my my guess is that she's probably a pretty funny person. That's their personality, I think she's and that just kind of flowed through yeah. to the product and the marketing and everything. Exactly right. You know, it was exactly like the Dollar right. Shave Club did the same thing. Do you remember flowed the Dollar through, Shave Club? Huh? Yeah, flowed through. Yeah, <laughs> flowed right on through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dollar Shave Club did that. Um, there's another one that I've been seeing. Oh, what is the product? And that is another problem. If you're marketing something and people can remember that your commercial is funny, but they can't remember the product, that's a problem. Yep. Um, I'll think of it at some point. Docker commercials. Anybody remember those? No. They would just show these guys hanging around on a porch, drinking some beers and the camera would just be in weird places and they'd be talking about odd things. The commercials were famous for not having anything to do with the pants that the guys were wearing. <laughs> it was Dockers. Uh, that was a big thing for a while. I don't know if it still is because I don't watch so TV. so much fun of that marketing campaign. I bet like they it's did. commercials about that, nothing. That yeah. happened a lot though. I mean, yeah. someone tried to explain that to me from oh, a marketing standpoint. It's Duluth Training Company. They're, they're men's pants. The one they have going on right now, it's all about ballroom. They're ballroom pants. It's literally for dudes so that they're not like tight in the Oh, crotch. ballroom. I ballroom. thought you meant like ballroom dancing. No, yes, no, no. The, like that's the point. That's the point. And uh, all they have like a whole series of commercials that are just one after another of hilarity. And they make all these plays on words about crotches that are totally fine to go on TV because they never say the things they're not supposed to say. And it is hysterical. I mean, it's hysterical. So 
So there's just something about marketing men's pants. That's yeah. right. <laughs> uh, you what to about, talk about the balls or nothing at all? So here, here's another interesting thing. Um, do you guys, you remember Old Spice? Yeah. In, you know, for years and years, decades, it was considered like, you know, like old dudes mm-hmm. only wore that, right? Sometime in the last decade, I think it was, they got wise to the fact that women are actually making like 80% of the buying decisions in the average household. And so they started making the commercials with the really sexy dude with like, you know, with the clothes that spin out and whatever. And they were designed for women. And all of a sudden now they're like a really hip brand again their sales like quadrupled in the first four months or five or six months that they did this campaign. And they've seen like year over year growth that they had never seen before. Does that mean I can get away with wearing Old Spice like my grandfather did? Because yeah. I would actually like that. I, I yeah. have fond memories of It's now considered that's what a hip brand. I just like not being able to, not having to unscrew the cap. Don't they have you that just little pop thing the little you top just pull, up. That, yeah. pull that thing out? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like, that's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> In the so, morning. So what that points to is not only... Now we're all going to go out and buy Old Spice. Yeah, exactly. When you guys come in next week, just... I'm very sensitive to smell, so don't all wear it on the same day. <laughs> I mean, you're so <what>, right. <laughs> so what this also points to is part of understanding whether or not there's a need for your market is understanding who is your target market. This is user right. personas. Right. It, yes, the person using Old Spice, the, those are men. It is not It is not a product designed for women. But if you don't understand that women are the ones who are doing the buying, men aren't typically finding new habits when it comes to personal grooming. David has been using the same shaving foam soap stuff, the same deodorant, the same hair product for his whole life. Do you know when he started using new hair products? When you bought him something different? Nope. When he started going to a female hairstylist. Oh. Who when she, when he comes in, she says, oh, we have this new thing. Do you want, do you want to try it on your hair? And so he says, okay. And if he likes it, he'll buy more of it. And if he doesn't, he'll tell her next time he sees her. Now, I am not the kind of person to go to him and say, hey, I saw, you know, I'm not like doing the shopping for our household. So I'm not like buying new things for him to try. But the point is, it's a female in his life filling that role. Yeah. So if she doesn't know that a thing exists, he's never going to find out about it because he's not looking. Like I found something that works for me and I'm sticking with it. Yeah. So... So there's user personas and and when you come back to technology really the people using technology are are the end users. So it's it's not quite as dichotomous as that in like an app or a website or a piece of software or a technology solution for something where you know somebody in your life is the one hearing about it and they're encouraging you and you're the end user. That's that might happen some but really what you in order for that to even be possible dudes have to resonate with Old Spice when they use it. Like they have to like it. Right. So what we're saying is why, why is it important to have to, to define product market fit to figure out if there's a market and how do you do that? It's important because if you don't, you will never know who you're targeting. You will never know whether your solution is actually resonating with them. Okay. So not only may you have a product that doesn't actually fix the problem, you won't have any idea who you're going after and how to get to those people. So let's say, for example, that you discover, in the case of Old Spice, women between the ages of 25 and 50 
are actually the people making buying decisions and changing their habits with regard to deodorant. Those people are generally, you can find 99% of them on Instagram and Facebook. So now your marketing campaign should probably include Instagram and Facebook ads. And then from there, you can start to distill down what are the traits of these people? Probably they're married women, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, we We already defined age. Probably they're in a certain income bracket. You can filter all of this stuff when you're defining your campaign. So now rather than a massive swag of women between the ages of 25 and 50, actually we need women between the ages of 25 and 50 who are married, who have an income level of this, and now you have a very defined target. You know what this makes me think of? I think I told you about it when Subaru realized they actually had a very large uh, lesbian population that yep. loved their cars. And so yep. they changed their marketing strategy to be very subtle so that only gay and lesbian would yep. pick it up. Yep. Um, but so that they felt some connection, felt connection. to the brand. Right. Yep. They felt like the Subaru, hey, the Subaru, Subaru recognizes what we're- They did the exact same thing with dog owners. What did they do like a yeah. secret signal or something? No, they're just the wording in their in their and the in couples their copy. that they put in there and it yeah, <laughs> it kind of was. I mean, there was, there, was is, there was copy that they would use that I I read and I was like I don't understand. It. And then they explained it and I was like, oh, okay, that totally I makes can, sense. That makes sense. And they did the exact same thing with dog people. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, dog owners, we have a very high percentage of people who buy our cars who do so because they are comfortable having their dogs in the car. We're dog friendly. Let's go with that. Yeah. So there's a user persona and they figured out what does that demographic look like and how do we target them? Do you know the only ads I ever see for Subaru have a dog in them? Yeah. Because they've said they want to be the most dog friendly car company in the world, right? They and Volvo are are in a fight for that right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is interesting because I've never seen a Volvo ad with a dog in it. No, I haven't either. I don't know what Volvo is doing about that, but so clearly almost 50% of startups in the last two years that have failed have done so because they have not done this work. Mm. How can we encourage you to do this work? <laughs> I mean, what, how, how do you, how do we start changing the narrative of, I have an idea to let me see if this idea is valid and if other people are experiencing this beyond my close friends and family. So a lot of times people ask us 150 validation interviews. That's a lot because these interviews take anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour to conduct Mm -hmm. because you need to get some background information and you need to describe the problem and you need to get feedback on that. And then you have to go through your prototype with them. It takes a long time. It's not a fast process. If you could sit down and do one an hour for eight hours a day, it would take you a month. Most people don't have eight hours a day and eight people a day willing to sit with them and do this to get that job done, right? And and most people can't do it as a full-time job, like they're right. doing it nights it and weekends. Be, yeah. So this is a two or three month process in order to actually get through this. So why, do, and, and inevitably people get to about 60 and they're like, well, I'm starting to hear the same thing over and over again. Great. Yeah. And that means Let's we probably other- are in the right vein. Let's find out what the other 90 And the reason they start to say that when they get to 50 or 60 is because that's about the time when they run out of people they know. Yeah. So here's the reason we say 150. We say 150 because you're going to have to make 100 new friends. Right. You're going to have to find 100 people who are your target audience who don't know you and love you and who don't already want to buy in because it's you doing it. 
and you're going to have to get those opinions because those are those are three times as valid as the first 50. We're trying to get you past that confirmation bias, which you're yes. absolutely getting from your friends and family. Yes. Yes. Except for Uncle Joe, who's just like, I think that's a terrible idea. Why yeah, what's funny, <laughs> we have a client who we love. He's fantastic. He actually, um, he left yesterday. He and, a, he and his fiance are getting married. They're, they have a destination wedding, so they're gone for two weeks. They left yesterday. Um his dad came in with him because he had been talking to his dad about this idea because they both sort of had some experience in the industry. And his dad looked at me and I said, well, what do you think of it? And he goes, I think it's insane. He's like, I have no <laughs> idea why anybody would ever do this. And he was like, but he's got to find out from other people because I'm not the kind of person who would do this. And I'm, I'm aware of that. And I think so far in our, some of our validation interviews, we found that that makes total sense, right? Yeah. Someone at his age bracket would not it's do this. It's totally a, a sub 40 year old thing that he's creating. Yeah. Like it's a millennial thing that he's creating mm -hmm. um, because we found that millennials will sacrifice a little bit of time, their own time to save money mm -hmm. where people who are above the age of 35 or 40 are typically like, I'd rather pay a little bit more money and not yeah. have to spend my time worrying about, you know, figuring this whole thing out. Right. So I, I just, I find it so interesting because so often what happens, and these are exactly the kind of stories that our startup program is designed to prevent, which is the story where people say, I spent the last couple of years, I heard another one the other day with this guy who has a brilliant idea. And we talked on the phone and he's like, yeah, I spent about $150,000 on software. I spent about $250,000 in marketing in a few years. And what I realized is that eventually at the end, it was always me and my, my reputation in my industry that was having people buy. He's like, that's not scalable. Yeah. And he's like, so now I'm kind of going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, why, why am I getting the results I'm getting? And I said to him, the reason we do the startup program is so that you can do that in the beginning. And not spend those and not spend of all those of hundreds of thousands of dollars because you don't have to spend half a million dollars to get to that answer. Right. Well, I was just thinking about how um, the the information that's revealed not only tailors your idea, but it also ta tailors your marketing plans. Yes. Yes. See now, Matthew knows that his marketing dollar is best spent targeting this age range. Exactly thus, right. Okay, Mister Marketing Team. You figure out what demographic classifications, other attributes go along with that age range. Yep. That's who we want to get. Yep. Yep. And it also like helps you. spice people. Yeah, exactly. And it also helps you define your MVP. So one, one of the problems that we see, and we've talked about this before, this is this analysis paralysis, we never get to market problem is that you're trying to boil the ocean and build the entire world. It's got to have this first, feature. And it's got to have that exactly. feature or we'll be embarrassed. Exactly. And if you're actually talking to the people who are going to use it, they're going to tell you what, what they care about, what they don't. Mm -hmm. And you should only build what they care about. Now, I've talked about this before. There's this ancillary benefit that's, that is baked right in if you do this right, which is you build only what people say they want and the thing that they want the most first, mm -hmm. you get it out there, you rock the market, you build up your user base. And then not only will they tell you what they want next, and you'll be able to say, wow, 80% of my market that I already have 
is telling me that they want this extra thing, you can then find out how much more they're willing to pay for it. And now you have an add on. Mm -hmm. And now you're making more than if you would have built the same, built both of those things in your MVP for that lower price. Right. There's so many reasons why this process is so critically important. And the biggest one in my mind is saving your hard earned money and your very, very valuable and precious and limited time. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back though, in, in one of the companies that I started before, we went through Founder Institute and, and they had us do a, a lot of these interviews. I don't think we had to do 150. Um, they weren't nearly as in depth, but you know, they, their, their goal was to teach us, you have to do this, right? Yeah. And we, we pivoted to a, a, a different idea that was actually a really interesting idea. And I don't recall us ever actually doing those interviews for that new idea. Yeah. You know, there's just something about like at the time we were like, this is such a good idea. Everybody's going to want this. Yep. And so you got back into that thing because your, your original data set uncovered something different. Yeah. And, but you have to go back and validate the new thing. Yeah. In so, this case, it was a completely different idea. So, oh, okay. so we would have had to have it anyway, but yeah. I, your, your point is valid. Yeah. yeah. Even when you. When you pivot just a little bit, you still need to go back through and, and validate those, yeah. those, those, um, theories. So we are working on a project. I, I don't want to, I don't want to speak too much about it because it's kind of under the covers right now, but, but it's, a, it's, it's intended to solve a social problem, um, specifically for, um, teenagers and college age kids. And one of the things that we thought was that the group of people that we're targeting who who are experiencing and like at risk for the thing we're trying to solve, we thought that they would want this solution to let them be anonymous. Mm -hmm. Resoundingly, 100% of people have said, we do not want it to be anonymous. Mm. We want to know who we're talking to. We want to know who the other people involved are. We don't, we don't want anonymity. That's part of the problem. Being anonymous is part of the problem that we're trying to solve. Which makes sense when you, in hindsight, it yeah. does Yeah, so we got through about 60 of the interviews. Every single person said it. And so we went back and said, okay, we're gonna, we need to tweak our interview to change. We talked about tweaking the prototype and then decided it actually didn't matter because people people get that. Mm -hmm. they, they understand how a profile works and they understand how, right. you know, those kind of things. They don't need to see it. Um, but we tweaked the questions to dig more into what is it about having it's being able to see the face of the person or see their history or see their profile. What is it about that that you like? Because we don't need to go to the level of a Facebook profile. We need to give them what they actually want in the context. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, so absolutely when, when you uncover trends or you un uncover new data, you want to, you want your validation process to be flexible enough that you can make tweaks and 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 uh dig into those new trends whether in an existing interview or in a new one or go back and talk to people that you talked to before and ask them some additional questions so that that uncovers a question for me you know when you reached those 60 and realized that 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 idea was off and you had to kind of re rework some things did you, did you have to go back and start from scratch? No. Did you say, I'm going to pick up where we are, maybe go back to a few that we had talked to and then show them this yeah, again? Yeah, you can always go back. But the reality is that in having the conversations we had where we, where we were asking about the anonymity piece, 
what that was where we uncovered the trends. So those people had already told us everything that they wanted us to know about. Mm -hmm. And now it's digging more into the, the pieces of the trend with a new set, because not only are we validating what we learned in the first 60 with the next 60 by, by taking out the anonymity and asking about, well, what do you want to know about people? But we're getting a new set of data because they're new people. Mm -hmm. That's why you have to do so many. Right. So if you're thinking that your product market fit is going to be, I'm going to sit at the library computer. So Grant, Grant found this really phenomenal resource for anybody who's, who's curious um, and you don't know how to do market research. There are a ton of services where you can go spend a ton of money getting access to statistics. U.S. Census data statistics, uh, Statistica is one of them. They're really phenomenal and they're super expensive. Grant discovered when he was at the local library um, and most libraries have things like this. He discovered there's a whole series of resources that most libraries pay for where if you just go to the library with your laptop, somebody can show you how to get all that data. And you discovered this and it's now how we do all of our market research for new products and new clients and things like that because there's access to all kinds of, I mean, we sat for like two hours and learned everything that there was to aggregate about the spa industry, the, the skincare industry. I would never have known what to look for. You know, I mean, we're, we're not in that industry, but we had a client who came to us who had an idea in that industry. We were like, okay, we got to go learn everything we can about the market. Right. Yeah. So it starts with market. It starts with the global statistics. It starts with if there's, you know, in her case, 24,000 skincare spas and salons in the in the country, a reasonable product will aim to capture between eight and 10 percent of a market in five to seven years. So you can kind of back into, OK, if we're going to be at 10 percent in seven years, how do, how do we grow that year over year, understanding that the first two to three years of growth is going to be slower than the last three to four years of growth? Like, so you need all those marketing statistics and those can be fairly simple. I mean, a couple hours in front of a computer doing the right kind of searching and the right kind of tool can get you to that. Mm -hmm. So you can see if our, if our product resonates, is there an ROI to be had here? But then you have to take all that data and you have to then abstract out all of your user personas and understand who am I trying to talk to? And then you have to look at the blue sky of everything that you think. You, I mean, if you could wave a magic wand and your app could exist today, there's going to be a lot of stuff in it that does not need to be in your MVP. Mm -hmm. And you got to get to that critical core thing that makes people change their habit, spend money or both that your technology does that, that it does it. And people are like, yes, that's worth it for me. And then you go test and validate the crap out of that before you ever spend a dollar on software development. So those 40 something percent of crunch based companies, there's, there's probably 42%, 42% of those 42%. There's probably a not insignificant number or percentage of those who actually might have succeeded had they done this. Yeah. Because they would have actually found yeah. where they needed to target their marketing. I mean, we've found companies where they're going down a path and if they make a tiny, tiny shift, you know, three quarters of a degree this way, they go from a half a million dollar market cap to a $5 billion market cap. Yeah. With a tiny shift. Yeah. And you can discover that in this process because people will tell you. So, all right. So as, as an interesting follow on, what do you think the number two reason was? That they failed? Mm-hmm. 
that that in Man, the last two years they, they gave up. That's what I was going to say. They quit too early, or they quit before they ran out of money, basically, and and they said, "Well, let's quit." They ran out of money. Yeah, it's it's not about focus. Focus was actually way down there. Lack of passion was way down there. Um, it was actually they ran out of cash. That was the next the next closest to no market need at forty two percent was they ran out of money at twenty nine percent. So the top, what is that? 75%, almost seven, almost three quarters of companies failed because there was no market need or they ran out of money. And why do you think they ran out of money? Because, because they, they spent, spent a all. lot of money doing the wrong thing, right? not having all the answers. So, um, so it's, it's another thing that we've said before in, in you know, it, one of the startup therapy couch videos was about this. Uh, actually one of our top seven reasons why your startup might be failing was because you you got too much money too soon. And everybody always says to me, is too too much money, is that really a thing? It is if it's too soon. Yeah. And if you, if you don't understand your market and your fit and your product well enough to know how you're going to use that money, it's infinitely harder if you raised half a million dollars, spent it all doing things that were unfocused, uncommitted, like not well understood tasks for a product that wasn't really wanted. And then you go and try and raise your next round because now we understand our market. Investors are very, very, it's very difficult to convince investors to invest in that because, well, you had a half a million dollars and you did nothing with it. Right. You, it took you half a million dollars to test validate your market. We don't know if we can trust you with another half a million or a million dollars. Well, and that, that also speaks to, you know, flip that around now. You've done the market validation. You have a very clear picture and then you go to raise money and you put that in front of an investor. That investor is going to go, this, this person did their homework. So I have, the, I have an exact story for that. So I and a group of women business owners in, in Denver have created a new fund that is all, all female, all female boarded. The, the fund is led by women. Um, we invest in female-led, female-owned, female-founded companies. One of our clients who we've been working with for a while, she has been doing this, this work and she's done it phenomenally. And even though she doesn't have revenue and she's not to market, we put together a pitch based on everything that we've learned and what, we're, what we know the go-to-market actually is. And the entire investment group was a resounding yes to giving her the money she wanted. Really? Yes. Wow. Not even a question because she's doing the work. When they, they ask a question, well, what do you think about this? She can back it up. She can yeah. say, well, during our market research, we uncovered that blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Exactly. Instead because of saying, I know that there's a market for this. Yeah. Well, how do you know? How do you know that? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, in, in the case we were just talking about saying, I spent $500,000 to learn that this was the market. Well, how do we know that really is then? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Now I'm sure this is right. Right. Eh, how do you know? How do you know? That was, that was a stark revelation for me when I was doing the startup. I told you before, and we met with one of our mentors. Um, he's fairly well known in, in, in Colorado circles. And I, I said something like th that, that woman that Grant knows, I'm sure of this. And, and he said that same thing. How do you know? What data do you have to back that up? And now I was like, oh, Oh, you have to, <laughs> you have to do research. You can't just go on gut on this. Yeah. Sometimes you can, but for the most part, no, you have to 
you have to go find out. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's partially now that I think about it, it's due to this mystique we have that we've built up about people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and like, oh, these idea guys that mm-hmm. I'm brilliant. You know, I just came up with this brilliant idea while I was sitting here on the veranda, you know, and that, that can happen for everybody. And it's like, you know, you, we always know it's like, no, if you read, they work for this a long time. It didn't just, it wasn't a flash. And, and yeah. even now, if Elon Musk has a brilliant everybody idea, wants to be that. Yeah. But even if he has a brilliant idea, he's got a whole team of people yeah. that are like, okay, let's go see if we can make money doing that. Yeah. Let's, he's got people that can do the market research. Yep. They are did still doing do the market the research. Thrower, though? Or did he just know guys are going to want this? No. <laughs> you know what? He had to set up a whole separate company because of the liability. So I'm pretty sure they probably did some market research on it. I mean, even if they didn't and that failed, who cares? Who cares? Because right? it's so freaking cool. I mean. What, but also it's not going to take his business down. There's no, a big difference between true, Elon Musk trying this little level, test thing out. Yeah. yeah. If you've got $10 million to throw at something and it doesn't hurt your bottom line and it doesn't hurt your life, then you can do whatever the hell you want. And we're probably not talking to you right <laughs> we're now. We're not talking to you. We're yeah. talking. We're, if you are the average so Elon, startup. If you're listening, please turn it off right yeah. now. <laughs> Actually, Elon, if you're listening, we've been we talking to your to people you. about getting you on the podcast. So let's uh, let's make that happen, bud. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we this this is the average startupper who has to go to his dad to borrow fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, you should be super aware of using it, that fifty thousand dollars to do this research first, because if you do. And if there's truly a market and a real ROI and there's a real business behind it, investors will see that. Mm-hmm. And so will you. And that next 50,000 or the next 500,000 will be that much easier to get and you won't waste it. All right. So uh, this has been Grant Parks, Daryl Brogdon and Cynthia Delaria with Rika Technologies and GodAnAppIdea.com and reminding you Almost half of startups fail because they don't test and validate their market. If you need help with this, we do this. This is what our startup program is for. And we want to save you very valuable, very precious time and money. Uh, Thanks for joining us. And we will talk to you guys next time. This episode of Incubate This was brought to you by GodAndAppIdea.com in partnership with Rika Technologies and The Rika Show. Visit us at rikatech.com for more fun with technology or at gotanappidea.com for more tips, tricks, strategies, and advice.